This is St. George's Cemetery. And so this is, so we're just north of like downtown. We are north of downtown. Yeah. And this is a, a big cemetery. This is a big cemetery. And this cemetery here been existing over two, three hundred years. Really? Right? Wow. Walking around Grenada's largest cemetery with Clinton Bailey felt kind of like walking around a small town with the mayor. Right here. Careful. Clinton knows all the latest about the history of family plots and who's buried where. Oh, this is very recent. That's this week. Clinton is the co-owner of Bailey's Funeral Home. It's been around for more than a century. And since the 70s, it's been owned by Clinton's family. His staff buries people in St. George's Cemetery all the time. And he spent a lot of time here, too, helping with the family business. He gave me and senior producer Ted Muldoon a walking tour of the grounds back in October of last year. Our cemeteries are dense. I can tell you that they are, they are full to capacity. You know? Everywhere you walk, come in here, you walk on someone. Eh? <laughs> the cemetery is about seven acres. It slopes down the side of a hill, right up against the ocean. The established, more expensive plots sit high up, where things are pretty organized. There are clusters of headstones and tombs with neat grass paths between them that are maintained by goats. Wait, did you see there's a goat? Why are they here? The local lawnmower. (laughs) (laughs) But where we were headed was at the bottom of the hill. Up and down, up and down. Careful, up and up. Just to walk through the lower part of the cemetery, you have to wade through this layer of vines that is so thick it comes up to your knees. And beneath the vines, you're basically scrambling over headstones and makeshift grave markers. They're all so close together that you don't know where one grave starts and the other ends. We are walking over graves currently. Careful, you twist your ankle. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen an exact figure on how many people are buried in the cemetery. But Clinton's guess is that it's at least 100,000. As you can see, the cemetery is overrun with dead bodies. There's no room that you could come and say, okay, well, the family can choose here or choose up there. It's wherever there's room you have to take. Everything is ram camp. When we finally started talking about the thing we'd come to talk about, Clinton's expression changed. Suddenly, he looked like someone who had been trying to solve a puzzle, but had been stuck for a very long time. This right here mm-hmm. is the entire area where he could be if he was among those remains, right? I, I am thinking the way how he spoke, I think it's in the bottom here. Clinton believes that buried somewhere in this part of the cemetery might be the remains of Maurice Bishop and the others executed with him. But no one has been able to figure out quite where. That's how I feel. You know, hit the hand on the head and say, damn, why didn't I push into it? From the Washington Post, I'm Martine Powers, and this is The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Episode 7. There's a sentence I want to read to you from the forensic report written on December 12, 1983. 
As a reminder, this report was written by the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology, a U.S. military agency that no longer exists. But this is the group that led the examination of what was inside the body bags brought to the med school anatomy lab in Grenada. And as you've heard, those body bags may or may not have contained parts of Bishop's remains or the remains of others executed with him. The sentence that brought me out to St. George's Cemetery came in the addendum to the report, right at the end. It says, quote, U.S. Army Graves Registration personnel maintained custody of the remains and reportedly sent the remains to Otway's funeral home in St. George's upon completion of our examination. Otway's used to be the name of Bailey's funeral home. And the anatomy professor, Dr. Robert Jordan, he remembers hearing about the remains going to Otway's, too. So that's when we buttoned everything up again, and then they came back on the 12th to take it down to Otway's. I was told by the locals that's where it went. When I first heard about Otway's, my thought was, okay, if those body bags were handed over to this funeral home, then surely they must have some record of what happened to the bodies after that. If only it were that simple. Nobody talked about it, even me. Mm-hmm. You know, I never asked my father anything about it. And it was my mistake, really, but... Yeah, do you wish that you had... I wish I did, and bring him and let him show me exactly where. When we first showed up unannounced at Bailey's funeral home and asked to talk to the owner, Clinton was game. He immediately sat us down in one of the conference rooms where he usually meets with bereaved families, and he laid out the whole story about a burial that his father did 40 years ago. As we've talked about earlier in the series, in October of 1983, crowds of people were shot at at the fort. Then the U.S. launched its invasion. Dozens of Grenadians were killed. At the time, Otway's was one of the few funeral homes on the island. It was owned and managed by Clinton's father, Leslie Bailey Sr. And it was Leslie's job to help deal with all those bodies. U.S. personnel went to my dad and told him, we have your contacts, we need you to walk along with us. And that's what took place. He was like the tag along everywhere they went. We go with our vehicles and just pick up bodies. They gave us the pouches. We'd put the bodies in pouches and stack them in the trucks. Clinton had just come back from the UK to help out at the funeral home after the invasion. One of those days when I was downstairs working, my dad said that he was called by the commander to go to SGU. That's St. George's University, the medical school where Dr. Jordan worked. And remove four pouches there that are sitting there, there's no electricity, and he needs to go and move them and bury them for him. Clinton remembers that Leslie left in a silver hearse to drive to SGU. He returned a little while later, and Clinton came out to the car. And he told me that he has these pouches, that he is going to bury them for the U.S. I went out there, but I did not, I saw the pouches. I did not open anything. And, and there were four pouches and, um, sorry, were they labeled? Were they? They were just the U.S. disaster pouches, those um, brownish, rusty color looking ones. But they yeah. said like U.S. Army or U.S. Yeah, U.S., yeah. U.S., yeah. They were all U.S. And can I ask, do you, you said you didn't open them. But no, but my dad did. 
Um, what my father did told, tell me that they were burnt beyond recognition, and there were all pieces inside here. And, and at the time, did you think like, oh, that could have been Maurice Bishop's body? Or I asked him. I asked my dad if he thought it was. Mm-hmm. He said it's beyond recognition. Hmm. Given the fact that whatever remains were in these bags were decomposed past the point of identification, Clinton's dad decided to bury them immediately. Leslie left for St. George's Cemetery with a few gravediggers. Clinton stayed behind. And when Leslie returned a little while later... What I was told by my dad, the bodies are buried in St. George's Cemetery, close to the wall. Close to the wall. Close to the wall. Having been to the cemetery, I can tell you, there are a lot of walls. Lots of walls. <laughs> and that's, that's the funny thing. I, I smiled about it when I said it because there's lots of walls. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I said, but I never probed. I never asked to show me. I went back to England um, three weeks later, uh-huh. and I didn't get back here till um, 84, 85. As far as Clinton knows, his dad didn't mark the side of the grave in any way. He didn't document where it was located. And he didn't tell anyone anything about it besides what he told Clinton on the day of the burial. Leslie Bailey Sr. died in 1998. Clinton and his brother Leslie Jr. took over the family business. Then, in 1999, there was the school project at Presentation Brothers College. We told you about it last episode. According to Clinton, that is when people started asking his family about the whereabouts of Bishop's remains. They came to me, and um, they all called me Uncle Clinton. (laughs) And they said, Uncle Clinton, we're doing a project, and we want to go a little further into the Morris Bishop issue. I said, okay, come, let me see if I can help you all. The students interviewed Clinton and some of his gravediggers. And when the boys' project started to get some publicity, that also brought attention to the Bailey family. It was the first time that many Grenadians were hearing the story. And from Clinton's recollection, the reaction was something like, wait, so you're telling us that your dad might have buried Maurice Bishop's body in an unmarked grave in the cemetery, and you're just sharing this publicly now? And... It bad face me in a way. How do you feel when you hear things like that, either saying that you know where the bodies are and aren't saying it publicly, or that, well, you had an opportunity to know, like you should have remembered, you should or have remembered. you should have, you know, you yeah. messed up yeah. by not I never writing went there. down where... I never went to the right. area. Because as I said, I came from England, I worked here for two weeks, two, three weeks, and then I went back. Mm-hmm. I didn't even go and ask. The voice you heard there saying you should have remembered, that is Karen Bailey, Clinton's wife. She works with him at the funeral home. And I think she might have had the best explanation for why this might not have come out earlier. The question always comes up, why we took so long to try and find the bodies? Because then we were afraid, right? Immediately following the invasion, nobody wanted to talk about it or deal with it. We just wanted to put it behind us. So you'd see it take more than 10 years before people start saying, where are the bodies, right? And this whole thing come up, right? If we had acted in a more timely manner, there would have been a lot more answers. All the people who are now dead would have been able to say, okay, this is where it is, and we were able to solve the problem. But partly we are to blame because 
for whatever reason, we didn't act in a, in a timely manner. It was a taboo Yeah, subject. we just wanted to disassociate from that time of this army and, and revolution thing. So nobody wanted to talk about it or deal with it. And now that we're trying to find answers, it's proven to be rather difficult, if not near impossible. I do want to remind you, the U.S. government's forensic report was inconclusive on the identity of these bodies. The forensic experts said that they saw no evidence that Bishop's remains were present, but they also couldn't be certain that they weren't. Though, as we discussed a few episodes back, also mixed in with these remains were items allegedly belonging to Jacqueline Kraft, Norris Bain, Fitzroy Bain, and Evelyn Maitland. I raise this again because that forensic report didn't come out until a month after these bodies were handed over to Leslie Bailey. So some have argued that it was premature for the U.S. military to give these bodies to the funeral home without flagging that they could have been the bodies of Bishop and others from the execution. If these were the right bodies, or even parts of the right bodies, Recovering those body bags would mean an enormous amount to the family members of the victims. And that's why, over the years, people have tried so hard to find them. My name is James Briscoe. I'm an archaeologist. I've done quite a bit of forensic work and um, a lot of just uh, dirt work, I guess you'd call it. So my name is Boyd Brown III. I'm a criminal justice professor at Nichols College in Dudley, Massachusetts. Dr. William C. Rodriguez III. I am a forensic anthropologist for the Armed Forces Medical Examiner's Office. There have been at least three different attempts to find and identify what was left of these body bags in the cemetery. One in 1995. Uh, He told me we were flying to uh, Grenada. One in 2000. I was informed that, you know, we were going to go look for the remains of Maurice Bishop. And one in 2012. I hopped on a plane and went to Grenada to try to find a mass grave. These were three separate attempts led by forensic teams with some serious chops. And they all failed. The first of those was the one that took place in 1995 with archaeologist Jim Briscoe. Uh, Well, it was actually sponsored by Nadia Bishop, Maurice's uh, daughter. Nadia Bishop was 14 when her father died. She now lives in California. We've spoken a few times since I first started working on this podcast. She was gracious in hearing me out, but ultimately she declined to be interviewed for the show. But she's been very invested in trying to find answers for her family. And back in 1995, she hired a forensic team to come down from the States. She wanted to find her daddy's grave. And um, she pretty much footed the bill for the whole thing. The forensic team that Jim was on, it was led by a man named Clyde Snow, who's now deceased. He was a big deal of forensic experts. Uh, Dr. Snow was uh, one of the premier physical anthropologist in the country, in the world, actually. Dr. Snow worked on cases ranging from the JFK assassination to the search for King Tut's tomb. He helped identify the remains of a notorious Nazi war criminal and victims of the Oklahoma City bombing. But the mystery of Maurice Bishop's body, that was a case he couldn't close. 
His team wrote a report. I was able to get a copy. It shows that over the course of a week, they excavated almost 4,000 square feet of cemetery. And that's a lot of digging. But we, we dug it, recorded everything. They found no sign of remains in U.S. military body bags. Then, a few years later, one of Clinton's gravediggers came across something in the cemetery. Uh, we got information that they believed they had found the remains of Maurice Bishop and some of his fellow diplomats because uh, the guy who ran the cemetery, they were moving some stuff around and they had information that there were a couple of grave sites in which there were body bags that were green military, U.S. military issue bags. And at the time, there was hope that this could have been the answer to the mystery until the U.S. sent down a forensic team, which included William Rodriguez. They determined that these were not the remains of Bishop or his allies. We found no evidence that any of these remains had evidence of gunshot wound, trauma, exposure by burning or exposure to heat. So these bodies that we looked at apparently did not come from the supposed burn pit. In 2012, a team led by experts from the University of Maine went to Grenada. That team included Boyd Brown. Grenada has been sort of like a a nagging thing in the back of my head for the last decade ever since we came back. Because, yeah, I mean, I think there's a good chance that we were, you know, if we had been five feet in a different direction, we may have found them. The team was invited by St. George's University and Grenada's Conference of Churches. And they got a lot of help from Clinton. Clinton talked about what gravediggers had told him in the past. He shared his own memories of where he remembered other burials taking place after the invasion. And with that information, the team narrowed their search to an area of about 1,200 square feet. For two weeks, they dug, in that same spot at the bottom of the hill where the vines came up to our knees. And trying to cut through that with our shovels and our trowels and everything was virtually impossible. And then we ended up bringing in a backhoe, and that took care of that problem. But then there was the constant rain and some of the reactions they were getting from Grenadians who had relatives buried in that part of the cemetery. There were a couple of times where, you know, people would come down and express their displeasure with us disturbing their, their family members' graves. All in all, Boyd's team uncovered the skeletal remains of as many as 57 individuals. But they determined that none of them were the remains from the anatomy lab. For the record, there is interest in doing another dig, maybe just beyond the borders of where the team from the University of Maine dug or somewhere closer to one of the walls. St. George's Cemetery is the property of the Grenadian government. And in our interview with the current prime minister, Deacon Mitchell, he said that he would be open to another attempt. Here's how he put it to me last year. There can't be a mass excavation because it will look like a bit of a wild goose chase and you, you don't have actual concrete evidence. But certainly... From my perspective, if we had concrete evidence, um, I certainly have the political appetite for having, um, you know, an excavation done. Prime Minister Mitchell said that he needed actual concrete evidence that Maurice Bishop's remains were somewhere in the cemetery. And there's a few different forms that that evidence could take. We mentioned photos in the last episode. 
the photos that Jamaican soldier Earl Brown told us that he took of Bishop's body in the pit. Again, we've requested those, and we're still waiting. But there are also the photos taken by the U.S. forensic team during the exam at the anatomy lab. There were only two images in the formal report, but Dr. Jordan says that more were taken over the course of the exam. Photos that could shed some more light now on whether the experts in 1983 could have actually made the conclusions that they made. We also know from the forensic report that X-rays were taken of the remains. Our reporting indicates that those X-rays may have been taken at a hospital in Grenada's capital. We have requested those photos and X-ray images from the Defense Health Agency, and they told us that they looked for them and couldn't find them. Earlier, you heard from William Rodriguez. He was the forensic anthropologist with the military who went down to Grenada in 2000 to identify bodies that turned out to not be Maurice Bishop. At that time, he would have still been with the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. He's now with the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. And there's something that William said in that interview that piqued my interest. So back when he was going to Grenada for this trip in 2000, he had reviewed the documents from the 1983 exam, the one in Dr. Jordan's lab. And he wasn't convinced that their conclusion back then was correct. If you look in terms of technology, they may not have had the the technology we had today, particularly like even the dental technology, because they would have probably, when they did it, they would have done standard radiographic x-rays like you would use on a whole body, and those are not ideal for looking at dental. William also talked about the fact that the trip didn't even include a forensic anthropologist. And so he thought there was a chance that the remains in that exam might, in fact, have come from Bishop. Even though they did not have uh, enough information to conclusively say it was Maurice Bishop and his cohorts, if those remains could be found, there's probably a very high probability that we could identify those remains today with our modern DNA technology. Of course, my thought in that moment was, sure, you could do DNA testing on these bodies if you had them, but nobody can find them. They are lost somewhere in the cemetery. But what if there's another way to get DNA from those bodies? That's after the break. Remember at the beginning of this series, when I told you that Grenadians had all these wild theories about what might have happened to Maurice Bishop's remains? There were suggestions that the U.S. buried them in secret, that they were cremated, that they were brought back to the U.S. for testing, still sitting in some lab in Washington. We noticed something in the forensic report. There was a quick mention of tissue that was collected for toxicology testing. It wasn't clear from that line if those tests had happened in Grenada. But then we were able to find a source someone who doesn't want to be identified. And this source confirmed that a number of samples were brought back to the U.S. This person had direct knowledge of the examination of the remains at the anatomy lab. They didn't want to be identified because they are concerned about potential retaliation from the U.S. government. 
what I can say about them is that this source was part of the U.S. military. They were in Grenada. I've talked to them over the phone. I've interviewed them at their home. According to this source, the samples collected from that exam included a part of a jawbone, potentially a tooth, pieces of skin and hair, and parts of what they thought might have been internal organs. If these tissue samples still exist, they could fill in a big part of the puzzle of this mystery. They could confirm whether the remains that the forensic experts looked at were, in fact, at least in part, bishops, or the remains of the other people executed with him. And confirming that could theoretically tell you whether the Grenada 17 were being honest when they said that they left these bodies at Calavini, whether Earl Brown was right when he said he saw Bishop's body collected by the U.S. military. But the ability to use DNA to answer these big questions would depend on how these tissue samples were preserved. If they'd been in formaldehyde all this time, that would be bad. Formaldehyde makes it difficult to extract DNA. If they've been preserved in wax, or if the team had taken dry samples of bone or teeth, that would be a lot better. Today, the DNA would probably still be intact. It could be extracted, and it could be used to make a match to a family member willing to provide a sample. That is, however, assuming that these samples still exist. The report indicates that the samples would have started out in the possession of the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology. But as I mentioned earlier, that agency ceased to exist in the early 2000s. So there's a question of what happened to the samples after that. From interviews and documents we've reviewed, the tissue repository that previously belonged to AFIP was transferred to the Joint Pathology Center in Silver Spring, Maryland. This is the federal government's premier pathology reference center. According to their numbers, their tissue repository includes approximately 55 million glass slides, 31 million paraffin-embedded tissue blocks, and over half a million wet tissue samples that have been collected over the last 100-plus years. So I reached out to the Joint Pathology Center. A couple days later, I got a response. A public affairs officer said that it didn't appear that they had any samples relevant to this examination. I pushed harder. I filed a Freedom of Information request. I got bumped up to the Defense Health Agency. And their response was, quote, After a reasonable search for records was conducted, it was determined that the DHA does not have records responsive to your request. I spoke with a few people who either used to work for the JPC or work for other agencies that work with the JPC. They suggested to me that it has been a challenge for the JPC to keep track of all the things that are in its enormous collection. The JPC is currently in the process of trying to digitize all the records about these millions and millions of samples. So these sources basically suggested to me that just because the JPC didn't find the Grenada samples doesn't mean they're not there. I tried talking to the Joint Pathology Center about all this. I wanted to set up an interview with the director to figure out, okay, where else could these tissue samples be, or what's the possibility that these samples would have been lost or discarded? After many calls and messages over the past 10 months, the Joint Pathology Center has still not agreed to an on-the-record interview with me. And I have run into closed doors like this over and over again. 
For example, one of our FOIAs that did return a document was from the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. That was one of the agencies that inherited the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology's documents when it shut down. They sent me a report, but it was a copy of a report that I had originally sent to them. I could tell because the file name was the same and it had all my same highlighter marks in it. When I asked them about it, they said that it might have been a mix-up, but they couldn't find any records beyond that. But there are records that they have, that I know that they have, that they also haven't turned over. Back when I was interviewing the forensic anthropologist William Rodriguez, as we were wrapping up, I asked about the report that he had in front of him, the report that he wrote after the 2000 trip to Grenada. Um, and the, uh, the, the report that you all did um, in 2000 that you gave to the FBI, is that, is that something that I would be able to get a copy of? <laughs> is that I'd have to see what the yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a copy I can give you, and you okay. he's the one that'd have to get it cleared. William was indicating here at the public affairs officer who was sitting in on this interview. Yeah, I'll have mm-hmm. to. I mean, there's a process. Mm-hmm. I'll figure out what it is. Yeah, yeah. and, and if, if I need to file a certain time that you know maybe it's declassified mm-hmm. by whatever, we'll find yeah. out. Okay, thank you. Yeah. That would be. I would. I would love to read it. Yeah, it's, okay. it really doesn't have anything secret in it. It's pretty straightforward scientific yeah. report. You know. After the interview, I followed up with the public affairs officer about getting that report. He said he couldn't give me the report because it belonged to the FBI. So I went to the FBI. They said that they didn't have the report. I went back to the public affairs officer. He said I should go to the Joint Pathology Center. The Joint Pathology Center, again, said they didn't have it. I argued with the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System, like, look, Regardless of whose report it is, you guys have a copy. I saw it with my own eyes. You agree with me that you have a copy, and that copy needs to be made public. I filed a FOIA and got kicked up to the Defense Health Agency, and they said, quote, the DHA FOIA office, JPC, and AFMES conducted extensive searches for your request and found no tangible copy of the report and no evidence related to the report, end quote. Again, that's after we talked about how they have the report. So that gives you a sense of what we're dealing with here. To be here now in 2023 and not have any answers from our government about something that is so sensitive and and so human is just beyond the pale. That is Congresswoman Barbara Lee. She is a Democrat from California and, as you might be aware, currently a candidate for the U.S. Senate. She's also been fascinated with Grenada since the 80s. Before he died, Maurice Bishop was capturing the attention of not only Caribbean people, but also Black Americans, artists and activists like Harry Belafonte and Angela Davis. Remember the speech he gave in New York City just months before he was killed to the packed auditorium that spilled onto the sidewalk outside. And if we have 95% of predominantly African origin in our country, then we can have a dangerous appeal to 30 million black people in the United States. Barbara Lee was one of those people for whom Bishop and the revolution had an appeal. African-Americans were going down there for the first time out of the country, out of the United States. They were going down, and I've I led, like, 
eight or ten delegations down there. Wow. Yeah. And black people in the United States said, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it was like an eye opener. It was like they can do it. We can do it. As a young person in politics, Barbara Lee actually spent a lot of time in Grenada while Bishop was in power. She came to know Prime Minister Bishop during her visits there. And she said that the revolution demonstrated a model for what a country led by Black people could achieve, determining their own policies and vision. In the face of all of the economic destabilization, the political, diplomatic, and military threats and pressure, we don't intend to roll over and play like an ostrich. We are going to stand on our feet and keep going forward. But then came 1983 and the events of October 19th. Bishop was dead. The revolution was dead. And since then, Barbara Lee has been trying to come to terms with what happened. She thought of Bishop as a dear friend. And for years, she has also been trying to find answers on the question of the whereabouts of the remains. It's only normal and natural for someone to be concerned about where the remains are of a human being, regardless of whether it's the prime minister, a friend, whomever. This is just how I viewed, um, you know, life, life and death. And so I've always been concerned from day one about this. And when I was elected to Congress, then I had the opportunity to start making the um, inquiries as it relates to the Pentagon to help us determine where his remains are. Now, they may or may not know but I've never received an accurate, objective, clear response. Congresswoman Lee said that she even made an appeal to the Obama White House. You know, it's a, a kind of, it's, I, I mean, it's hard to understand why, given our involvement, and you know the history of the United States' involvement in this, that we can't have an investigation and determine where his remains are. You can't tell me that the most sophisticated country in the world, the wealthiest, the most powerful country in the world, you can't tell me that the United States of America cannot identify where the prime minister of Grenada's remains are. You just can't tell me that. As we approached this episode and the end of the series for now, I wanted to explain to Congresswoman Lee where all our reporting has led. And of course, where all our reporting has led is complicated. We did not find the remains of Maurice Bishop. But we did uncover accounts and sources and records that no one has ever heard before. The evidence suggesting that the area around the pit was bombed. The account from the Jamaican soldier who said that he saw Bishop's body, that it was tagged and taken to a ship. The account of the governor general allegedly saying that he understood that Bishop's body was dropped in the ocean by the U.S. The questionable findings of the forensic report and its missing photos. And the fact that tissue samples were brought back to the U.S. You can mix and match these accounts and this evidence in different ways and come up with different theories about what might have happened to the bodies and when. All of our reporting, though, leaves us with one very clear takeaway. And that is that the U.S. government has more to answer on all this. 
We have shown that people in the Army and the State Department and even the CIA all were aware of bodies at Calavini and reported them in one way or another. And at some point, the Army and the State Department both thought that Bishop might have been among them. And we know that there are a lot more U.S. government documents and photos and records that exist and that could shed further light on this. Who knew what when and what they did with that information? We were definitely involved with this. That's how Congresswoman Lee responded when I told her about all that we'd uncovered. And so uh, to be dismissive and to pretend that it didn't happen or that we had no involvement is just um, a stain on our country. And and this administration has the moment and the opportunity to, to make this right. She has also run into closed doors looking for answers recently. I have written several times to the administration. Now I'm waiting on a response from uh, Secretary Lloyd Austin uh, from the recent letter I wrote. This is a letter Lee sent back in October of this year, the day before the official 40th anniversary of Operation Urgent Fury. Lloyd Austin is the U.S. Secretary of Defense. In this letter, she criticized how, in her words, quote, the United States government has failed to provide a complete and final accounting of what happened to Bishop's remains once they came into U.S. custody. And I'll give you the questions we asked. Why are there no files available? Uh, and does the department know whether and how or when the files were destroyed? What are the department's processes for accounting for human remains that are recovered by the military? Were the correct procedures followed in the case of Maurice Bishop? What safeguards are in place so that an incident such as the loss of Maurice Bishop's remains does not happen in the future? And what type of safeguards are needed? And so I want answers to those questions, and I want them to to do their due diligence and to do everything they can do to identify his remains and locate them so we can let the family and the country and the people know and in our own country know exactly what happened. The way Congresswoman Lee sees it, this is about respect and about which countries get it and which countries don't. They're very dismissive. And I'm saying, how can you just be dismissive of something that is so important that the United States was involved in? It's, it's outrageous. And I've seen over the years how, you know, we have really dismissed in many respects the West Indies and, and the Black Caribbean nations. And so the attitude toward the Black Caribbean, it was very, very, in many ways, racist. And so I see that through that prism and through that lens also. A lot of Grenadians see it that way, too. I went back to Pamela Bullen-Cherubin. Again, she lost her dad, Evelyn Bullen, at the fort. I called her one evening at home, and just like when I'm on the phone with my parents, I could hear the frogs chorusing in the background. Do you think that the U.S. government has any responsibility to reinvestigate the events that took place in Calavini? Yes, they do have that responsibility. And not to point finger to punish, but for history, documentary purposes, to let it be known that this was done and it was a mistake whatsoever. We are sorry. They have a responsibility. We hold children accountable for their actions. Why can't they be held accountable for their actions? Don Rojas said something similar. 
You heard from him in previous episodes. He was Bishop's friend and former speechwriter. I don't know what the U.S. will say, but I think this, this should say something. I think it's the, it's the decent and, and an honorable thing to do, is to, is to say, well, look, we don't know, or we have explored all of the possibilities. We have done this, that, and the other study, forensic study, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we've come to the conclusion that we cannot provide a definitive answer. If that's it, then say that. And the, and the, and the Grenadian people say, okay, they will respect that. The families will respect that. It will be seen as a respectful gesture on the part of the world's superpower. A while back, I had a conversation with someone in the U.S. government. It was a conversation on background. But he gave me his perspective on why this mystery has gone unsolved for so many years. His take was, this isn't a product of the U.S. caring so much to hide the remains of a prime minister. This is a product of the fact that the U.S. doesn't care at all. The work required to untangle this, to go back and track down retired officials and former graves registration crew, to declassify documents and oral histories and dusty archives, to find and make public photos and aerial shots and x-rays and tissue sample records, that that is a level of work that the U.S. just doesn't care enough to do. I don't know if that's true, but my plan for now is to keep reporting. Today, we still have more than 20 outstanding Freedom of Information requests to agencies including the State Department, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and the military. As you've heard from the start, we are asking them for reports, photographs, personnel files, satellite images. Some have estimated dates of completion all the way in 2025. And if we get more information, more records, more evidence that offers new insights, we will come back to tell you what we've got. In the meantime, the families of Norris Bain, Fitzroy Bain, Jacqueline Kreft, Evelyn Bullen, Evelyn Maitland, Eunice and Whiteman, Keith Haling, and Maurice Bishop— are all still waiting to put their loved ones to rest. The recovery of these bodies would be huge for Grenada. Even just more answers would be huge. But as you just heard from Pamela and Don, a simple acknowledgement would be meaningful too. That of the many places all over the world that the U.S. has influenced or invaded or upended or nation-built or shaped in some way, that this island at the bottom of the Caribbean mattered too.
This has been the final episode of The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Thank you so very much for listening to the series. You can dive deeper into everything you've heard by going to our episode guide at WashingtonPost.com slash Empty Grave. And you can email us thoughts, reactions, and questions at EmptyGrave at WashPost.com. There's a huge number of people who made this series possible, and I want to take the time to thank them here. Our reporting was helped enormously by Alexandra Rivera and Hannah Holthouse from the American University Washington Post Practicum Program. Additional reporting also came from colleagues at The Post, Joyce Lee, Amanda Kletta, and Rosanne Niklaoui, along with our former intern, Natalie Bendorf. We received production support from Lucas Trevor, Sabby Robinson, Ariel Plotnick, Arjun Singh, and Sean Carter. I also want to say thanks to a whole bunch more people at The Post who shaped this story and its presentation. Those people are Cameron Barr, Barbara Vobeda, Krista Thompson, Matea Gold, Dave Fallis, Jeff Lean, Greg Manifold, Maggie Penman, Rena Flores, Jenna Pirog, Shane Harris, Jen Abelson, Jabin Botsford, Jenna Leaf, Virginia Singerayer, Jordan Melendrez, Rachel Sadon, Robert Miller, and Savannah Stevens. We received FOIA guidance from Nate Jones, publishing support from Allison Michaels, and project editing from Casey Shaper. Our show art was designed by Lucy Nayland. Our series theme and music is by Keshav Chandradath Singh. Mixing, sound design, and additional music by Ted Muldoon. Mix editing by Theo Balcom. Fact-checking by Amelia Schonbeck and Nicole Pasolka. The editors of this series are Sarah Childress and Renita Jablonski. Our show was reported and produced by Ted Muldoon, Renny Svernovsky, and me, your host, Martine Powers. I also want to thank Lisa Pollock, Kate Doyle with the National Security Archive, Julie Kane, Ramteen Arablui, Rund Abdel Fattah, Lane Kaplan-Levinson, and Noreen and Alan Scott. And a huge thank you to my mom and dad. This podcast would never have happened without both of them sharing with me their love for this place and this history. I also want to extend my profound gratitude to the whole audio team at The Washington Post, who worked tirelessly to support this project and afford us the time and space to make it a reality. And if you liked listening to my voice for all this time, you might be interested in subscribing to another podcast at The Washington Post. It's called Post Reports. I'm the co-host, and it's a daily podcast that explores news, politics, and events shaping the world every day. Follow and listen to Post Reports on your podcast app. I look forward to seeing you there. Of course, the best way to support all of this work is with a subscription to The Washington Post. You can do that at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. Thank you for listening to The Empty Grave with Comrade Bishop.